You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. We're looking in Luke's Gospel still, making our way through Luke's Gospel. We're in Luke uh, chapter 9 this morning, uh, same place we were last week. We're going to look at a short passage uh, beginning at verse 46. Uh, this scene is the last scene in what is known as uh, the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Luke, or, Luke arranges his gospel according to, uh, to geography. It's not necessarily chronological, but uh, Luke has shared with us the, the bulk of Jesus' ministries that take place in Galilee. And uh, from uh, uh, next week on through chapter 13, there's going to be a lot of events that take place in Judea. Uh, and then after uh, Luke 13, some events of Jesus that take place in uh, Perea, uh, Gentile territory. But Luke chapter 9, verse 46 is uh, where we'll begin this morning, 46 through 50. Little theologians, I'd like for you, if you would please, uh, draw a picture of um, a, a king or someone in authority who is guarding who can and cannot enter a city, Okay. A king or someone, someone in authority who's guarding who can and cannot enter a city. Maybe you can draw some people trying to get in. Some get in, some don't. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Let's pray together first. Please pray with me. Our Holy Father, thank you for speaking to us. We, we need you to reveal yourself, and you have done so in Scripture, and we ask that you would forgive us for taking it for granted, but we also ask that you would implant this word uh, this morning, that we would go from this place, that we would uh, reflect upon this passage over the course of the week and be spurred on to read more in your word. Uh, Spirit, a final thing, we would ask that you would uh, be with the preacher of this this word. Uh, Help me as a uh, preacher to explain clearly your word, God. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of our Lord. As I already mentioned This is the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And if you look at Luke 9.51, you read the phrase, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And many commentators find in Luke 9.51 a a mark uh, of a significant development in Jesus' ministry. He's uh, already confessed uh, twice the way things will pan out. He's saying that the conflict that the disciples have witnessed thus far, it's actually going to get worse. Uh, 
And the end of the conflict is going to look very dire. He actually will be killed, he says to his disciples. And while he said in 922 that it would be the elders and chief priests and scribes who would spearhead his demise, where is he now setting his face to go? Jerusalem, where these people live and work. So this morning, Jesus is ending one chapter of ministry and he's beginning another. In many ways, Jesus finishes out this stage or this chapter of ministry with a boom. Think about these events The disciples, led by Peter, confess for the first time that he is the Christ of God. And then Jesus confesses that he is to die and be raised from the dead, and then reveals himself to James and John and Peter on the mountain. And then finally, uh, Jesus comes down from the mountain to save a father's only child, and then he says again that he must be delivered into the hands of man, even unto his own death. And what would be an appropriate way to tie together all of these great scenes as Jesus closes out a chapter of his ministry to begin the chapter in which he sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem? What is an appropriate way to tie together these scenes? How about a selfish, petty argument among his closest friends? As Jesus is to be delivered into the hands of men, the disciples are already arguing about who gets to assume the place of greatness as Jesus dies. And out of this dispute, we see that Jesus says to them that it is the humble man who gets to taste greatness, because greatness comes through humility before God. We want to start with the argument itself that starts in verse 46. Our passage begins this way, and an argument arose between them. If we look at Mark's gospel, we learn that this argument broke out as they were walking back to Capernaum, where many of them lived and worked. And it may be that the disciples have been away from their home since the feeding of the 5,000 near Bethsaida in Luke 9.10. And now perhaps a week later, or perhaps even more, they're finally heading back home. You know, this first century group of people is not terribly unlike a group of people today. People argue. They're likely tired, these disciples are, and they want to get home and sleep in their own beds. It may be that a few of them are just temperamentally prone to grumpiness. Maybe one or two are easily agitated. But James and John, in particular, we're told elsewhere, actually have volatile personalities. And one disciple, Simon, is a former zealot and likely has all kinds of opinions to unload on others. An argument is actually not an unlikely scenario. But more than this, consider uh, all that the disciples have seen in the past few days. They've witnessed a crowd miraculously fed. Jesus has begun to talk about his apparently fast-approaching death and the hint that they may be called upon to die as well. And very recently, Jesus and three others ascended a mountain for the night and said very little afterwards. That would spark conversation. And these disciples also experienced a difficult battle with an evil spirit, and they lost that battle. An argument or two is not beyond imagination. This isn't an excuse, it's just a reminder that we ourselves are not immune to argumentation, even as Christians in the church. 
This is why we are admonished in Philippians 2 to do all things without grumbling and without disputing. That's the word that's used in our passage here, disputing. It's why 1 Timothy 2.8 tells us that we should live in the church without anger or quarreling. It's why we should be suspicious of men and women who have unhealthy cravings for controversy and quarrels. And it's why elders should be gentle and not quarrelsome. As humans, even Christian humans, we can be an argumentative bunch. But we're told by Luke that the disciples are arguing about a very specific matter. They're concerned about personal greatness. As they walk home to Capernaum, they talk about the strange things that they've witnessed, the words of Jesus, the glory of the gospel, its implication for all of life, and then they veer into an unhelpful discussion about their new role as disciples in the absence of Jesus. The world is about to change and Jesus will not be here. So what does that mean for us? There is about to be a leadership vacuum plus the initiation of a new kingdom. So what about me? That's their argument. John Calvin says their minds were covered by the thick veil of a foolish imagination. But the disciples are actually in a very precarious situation. They're concerned about making a name for themselves. It's not straying too far to remember that in Genesis 11, a people gathered on a Mesopotamian plain saying, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And that's Genesis 11:4. We ought to hear echoes of that here in this argument that the disciples are having among themselves. The 12 disciples are so panicked that they begin to rank themselves. This is what's behind the use of that superlative adjective, greatest, at the end of verse 46. You see, to ascertain the greatest, you need to ascertain the greater, and you need to ascertain the merely great. You have to rank everyone if you're going to find out who truly deserves the adjective greatest. And all of us here know that there is no end to a created being comparing himself or herself with another created being. There's always someone prettier. There's always someone more handsome. There's always someone smarter, always someone wealthier, and so on and so on and so on. And that's the battle that the disciples are engaged in here. They're trying to ascertain not only who is the greatest, but everyone below. They're ranking people. Now, Jesus clearly knows what they're doing. Look at verse 47. In verse 47, Luke tells us that Jesus understands the reasoning of their hearts. That word in 47 for uh, reasoning is the same word that's used in verse 46 for argument. The word reasoning and argument are the same. When Jesus was presented at the temple, I want to remind you that Simeon holds Jesus up and he blesses him saying, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts, the same word is used here, or arguments, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So, listen to this. When Jesus knows the reasoning of their hearts in verse 47, he's actually fulfilling a promise that was articulated by Simeon in Jerusalem. Do you wonder how it is that Jesus understands the reasoning of their hearts? How does he understand this? 
Well, it's more than likely that Jesus knows that temptation to love a human arrangement of the world more than a sovereignly divined arrangement of the world. Before his death, he will pray to his father that if it be his father's will, that he would remove the obstacle of the, of the crucifixion from him. Jesus prays that. He understands the power of a human arrangement in contrast to a divine arrangement. And of course, it was not God's will that Jesus would be spared the crucifixion. And Jesus submitted to his Father's arrangement for his life. Jesus knows that his disciples are struggling to accept God's arrangement for their lives and God's arrangement for his kingdom. And here's how Jesus responds. I'd like for you to imagine two children arguing over a cookie. Two children arguing over a cookie. A mother or father has a number of options at their disposal to deal with this crisis. If they're noisy children, it could be indeed a crisis. Now, one option is to remove the cookie from the equation. If you want to argue over it, then neither of you will get it. And this ends the quarrel, but it doesn't really get to the heart of the matter in terms of who is at fault. Someone's probably being unjustly punished. However, it stops the argument and temporary peace is better than whining children. Okay, it's the first scenario. Remove the cookie from the equation. Another option is to produce yet another cookie so that now each child has a cookie and the argument ceases. You've probably trained them that argumentation yields rewards. However, temporary peace is better than whining children. Produce another cookie. Now, what Jesus does is a lot like the latter scenario. He seems to offer the disciples exactly what they're fighting for. You fight over one cookie, I'll give each of you a cookie. After all, temporary peace is better than whining children. But Jesus does something more. He, he doesn't give each disciple one cookie. He gives each disciple one thousand upon thousand upon thousands of cookies, far more than they ever argued over in the first place. Let me back up and tell you what I mean. You see, the disciples are comparing themselves to each other. They're vying for what? For greatness. That's what they want. Greatness. But what Jesus offers at the end of verse 48 is not simply a chance to be ranked the greatest, but greatness in its very nature. He himself is able not simply to take one of the disciples and make them the new greatest after he dies. As the Christ, Jesus is able to take a man or a woman who has no hope of ever being on the scale of greatest ever be on the scale of greater or ever on the scale of great. And Jesus has the power as Christ to make that one man or that woman definitively great, eternally great, far greater than anyone could ever imagine arguing over. You see, Jesus doesn't let his disciples talk about greatness in comparison with each other as if there are degrees of greatness. He talks about the very nature of greatness, the heart of greatness, the permanent state of being great in the eyes of God. That's what is of interest to Jesus. 
In uh, discussing this topic, a reformed theologian named Herman Bavinck in the early 20th century says that this here is a picture of what makes Protestant theology, evangelical theology, so different from Roman Catholic theology. He says that in Roman Catholic theology, grace chiefly serves to strengthen the will of man, to qualify him for the performance of various uh, meritorious good works prescribed by the church. Grace is chiefly about strengthening someone that they might do God's will. But in Protestant theology, grace raises man to the rank of an organ of the divine will itself. Grace actually raises a man out of a state of death into a state of eternal life. To the Protestant, grace utterly changes a man, utterly changes a woman into a different being. God doesn't give us tiny bits of himself. God gives all of himself so that in grace we are great. There's no need to rankle for position. Well, the grace of the gospel doesn't give you a fighting chance to become great, greater, or greatest. The grace of the gospel actually makes you great in the eyes of God. You are an utterly new person, a great person who can stand before God without condemnation, who can call Him Father, who can commune with Him, who can glorify Him, who can have Him with you for all eternity. That is the great that Jesus offers. That is the great of grace. Well, Jesus has three things to say to his disciples about this kind of greatness. First, greatness is established not by performance and not by effort. Greatness is established by relationship. By relationship. It's not about how you perform, but about who you love or who you receive. This should actually make sense to us as we're jockeying for greatness, even in our own lives, comparing ourselves with those around us. What is our most important love when we are comparing ourselves with others? Our most important love is clearly the love that we have for ourselves. None of us has any problem understanding that arrogant people have enormous affection for themselves. This is what pride is, raw and brutal self-love. It's a kind of relationship, one in which the heart is turned in on itself, loves itself, receives only itself. But the greatness that Jesus offers is also about love, but rather than self-love, it is love for Jesus, which in turn is love for God. Greatness that comes by the effort of a sinner is only a greatness in comparison to other sinners. Perhaps there's a small joy to be had in this, but not when you're compared to God himself before whom all of us must one day stand. Jesus is saying that there has to be a certain amount of dissatisfaction with your own human effort before you'll ever receive the efforts of Jesus. He's saying to the disciples that receiving him is never properly done unless there is a total rejection of all personal effort. This is the first reason why a child serves as a good example of greatness before God. Children don't have the powers of adulthood. They can't protect themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't secure housing and clothing for themselves. They're naturally disposed to be dissatisfied with their own efforts. This is the humility of children. They have nothing. They need everything to be provided for them. 
And adults aren't like this. They have power. But Jesus says that an adult who wishes to be great before God actually has to suspend that power, to set it aside, to turn from an infatuation with his, his or her own power, and to receive Jesus. This is humility like a child. Greatness is established by one's relationship to Jesus as he or she comes to him without any power of self-preservation and needing him to be that preservation. This is receiving Jesus like a child. That's how greatness is established. It's about a relationship, not an effort. But Jesus turns from the subject of how greatness is established to entice the imagination of the disciples about what it means in terms of who can be great before God. The disciples are busying their minds with criteria about who gets to be greatest, determining a protocol about who gets to be in the kingdom of Jesus. But Jesus says, even the least is great. Do you hear that? Even the least is great. This is the second reason why Jesus uses children as an example of greatness before God. I want to challenge all of us to see that children teach us not only about how being great before God is established, that is, through humility, but children also teach us about how loving God is. If the weakest among us, if the weakest among us are welcomed by Jesus, that says more than just everyone needs to come as a child. If the weakest among us are welcomed by Jesus, it says that the door is wide open for many of us to become great before God. Who can become great before God? Even a child, Jesus says, the most powerless among us. And if even children, then everyone else. If children can become great before God, then there is no brokenness that can bar you from this greatness that comes through Christ Jesus. Even children are allowed and if even children are allowed. It means that there is an avenue for the thief, the criminal, the prisoner, the felon, the addict, the prostitute, the depressed, the poor, the helpless. I mean, if even the most powerless among us can be great before God, then anyone can. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? It's very important for the disciples to learn that they should expect to find Christians among all walks of life. It's not just those 12. In Jesus, even the least is great. And that's actually what's already begun to happen. Surprising people are coming to Jesus in faith. These 12 men have had front row seats to observe the story of redemption being worked out right before their eyes. They're seeing in its clearest expression God's plan to rescue lost sinners. And as they witness the work and the ministry of Jesus, implications of the gospel are finally beginning to sink in. And in verse 49, we learn of an unknown man who is casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but we know nothing about him. But we do know this, he too has been impacted by the gospel, even though he hasn't had that front row seat of the disciples. He hasn't been as close to Jesus as the twelve, but it would seem that he too has become dissatisfied with his own efforts. He has set aside love for self, and he has received the life and work of Jesus and is great before God. He has come to him as a child in humility, and as such, in verse 50, Jesus says that he is for the disciples. Now, when the disciples were arguing over who is greatest, Do you think that this guy got a fair shake? 
you know what I'm asking. As they're making their way to Capernaum and they're arguing about who gets to be the greatest, does this guy figure into the formula at all? And yet, he is for the disciples. And Jesus praises him. Now later in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going to send out not just the 12 disciples into the harvest, but 72 others. Luke 10 verse 1. Did any of these 72 get an interview with one of the 12 to be considered as the greatest? Were they part of that great comparison? You see, Jesus is saying to the disciples that even the least is great. There will be surprising members of the church of Jesus. You haven't even met them yet. And Jesus is saying that even the outsider can be great, someone you have never met at all and someone who on the surface you think you need to protect yourself from. The truth is that the church of Jesus is a lot larger than we imagine. To get lost in denominational squabbles, to be a church that has no appreciation for Christians in other places or from other eras of world history, that's just arrogant. It's just arrogant. Jesus talks about their argument knowing exactly what that reasoning is like, but then he corrects that reasoning by not, de- not describing a greatness of degree, a greatness that one needs to fight for. Jesus talks about the greatness that comes by grace through a relationship with him. And if I could tie together that argument that the disciples are having about greatness and Jesus' description of what exactly the nature of being great before God is, there are four things that I want to close with. First is this, the disciples do not get to rank people in Jesus' kingdom, and neither do we. We're called to serve the bidding of our master. We have the authority of Jesus' word in scripture, and that authority guides us. So the argument that the disciples are engaged in to rank themselves before God is a complete waste of time and utterly unbiblical. The disciples do not get to rank people in Jesus' kingdom, and neither do we. The second thing is this. Greatness before God is always a matter of receiving His Son, Jesus. It's a profession of faith in Him. The model for this is the humility of children who have no choice but admit their powerlessness. But keep this in mind that greatness before God is always a matter of receiving a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. That is greatness. Third is this. There's an implication to be noticed here. And that is this, that if a powerless child can actually be a member of the kingdom of God, then anyone can become a Christian. We should expect to find Christians coming to us from all over. We ought to expect to be surprised at who can come to Him. So great is that grace, so freely offered is that grace, and so low is the bar to receive that grace. We ought not be surprised when we meet someone who doesn't look like us or talk like us or act like us, but professes faith in our Jesus. He's their Jesus too. That's the third thing. And the fourth is this. It's related. There's Christians far and wide whom we have never met. We should pray for them, and we should watch out for a Christianity that seems to be too bonded to things that aren't that important. 
We're called to be Christians. We're not called to be American Christians. We're called to be Christians. We're not called to be Presbyterians. We're called to be Christians. We're not called to be Christians with certain ethical points of view that are not explicit in Scripture. Christians are far and wide because the grace of God is expansive. The gospel, by its very nature, goes out. It reaches far. If Christianity is only about our neighborhood, then we need to rethink things. Well, this is God's Word. Let's pray together and confess our faith with the Apostles' Creed. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you teach us. We are sorry we're so stubborn. We're sorry we don't want Christ. We want Christ plus other stuff. We're sorry for that. We're sorry that we are distrustful. And we think that there ought to be something more than just Christ. And there ought to be something more than the gospel. I know the gospel has got to be more. Father, forgive us for being so distrustful. Thank you for providing richly for us. Forgive us for, tra- for chasing after so many silly tr- trinkets. Things that don't matter. We have a reconciled relationship with the maker of the cosmos. Forgive us for being so unsettled. We come to you in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.